Thank you, Reverend Dr. Molly. <laughs> yeah, you can just call me Jake, but I do appreciate it. It is so great to be here, and I have a couple of things just to say beforehand. I said this to the first service, but I think you should know too. First, th this is my first week wearing bifocals, so if I trip or fall down, it, I'm okay. It's just uh, adjusting to these things. And I learned in the first service I need to take them off during my sermon. Um, so just, just old man stuff just to take care of. Uh, but the second thing is I, I have learned this bad habit that I have that the, the, the nicer, the, the more welcoming a church is, the longer I preach. And I don't know what, and, and you guys have been so great that who knows how long this sermon's going to be. So next time, just be really rude and you'll get a short sermon. Um, but my, I am so happy to be here with you today, and I want to do two things, and I'm going to try to keep them both fairly brief. The first is I want to just briefly describe what our organization is, the Anglican Relief and Development Fund, and just be a teaser. If you want more information, please come after the service to the Q&A Lunch and Learn, and we can talk way more uh, about what we do and how we do it. But your, your church is a partner of ours, so every time you give in the offering plate, a, a, a portion of that goes to help the global Anglican Church, and we're so honored and grateful, so thank you. Um, I was just randomly in town last night for a meeting with a, an international church leader and emailed Molly and said, hey, I, I don't fly out. Can I be a guest preacher? And, she, and Rick and Molly said yes, so I'm so happy to be here. Um, so the easiest way for me to describe us uh, is by our acronym ARDF because Anglican Relief and Development Fund is way too long. So if you're a rebrand person and you can help us, please. Um, so the A is Anglican. We are uh, very connected to the Anglican Church in North America. We were birthed at the exact same time, 2004, and uh, we're a separate 501c3. We don't receive any funding from the Anglican Church of North America, but we were created by them to do two specific things. Uh, one of them is the R in our name, relief. So from an international perspective, we just provide funding for disaster relief, uh, hopefully through an Anglican church or an Anglican entity where they are present or a nonprofit where they're not. So we're pretty constantly responding to international relief uh, crisis. Um, I was overwhelmed when I took this job. I had no idea how many disasters are happening around the world every single day. So there's a pretty consistent need for funding to do relief work around the world. Just this, you know, we had the, the horrible wildfires in Maui that we're responding to. And also the, the, I don't know if you saw the news of all the Christian churches that were burned in Pakistan. Uh, we're also helping some of the Anglican churches rebuild there. And that was just last week. So it's a really overwhelming task. Uh, and then domestically on the relief side, not only do we provide funding, but we've just recently launched a, a national disaster response network. And so we're, we're praying for one representative from every Anglican parish to say, I'll be the ARDF d domestic response representative. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, just kidding. Um, but if you have any desire at all to be the representative from this church, all that means is that you would raise your hand and say, Jake, I will be the point person if there is a domestic disaster uh, that I will receive the information and I will let my church know how to respond. Um, and we are, it's just, we've had so many amazing opportunities to respond to disasters domestically as well. And then F, we are a fund, uh, so we're fundraisers. Uh, that's not my primary purpose here today, but I never turn down funding, so. With that said, now I get to deliver a homily on my absolute favorite story in the New Testament. So it's such an honor to get to share a short sermon with you today. But first, will you pray with me?
O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this section of scripture, as most of you know, is, is in the middle of an unfolding story. Uh, Jesus had gathered up his disciples and had lived with them for three years, and they had slowly but surely grown to believe that he was the Messiah and that some sort of kingdom was going to be established. And they left their secular careers and joined with Jesus and were all in. And then unexpectedly, this is not, I don't think what any of them were expecting, Jesus is crucified and, on a cross. And now we is where we catch up in the story. These disciples are trying to figure out what to do. Do they go back to their former career? Are they gonna experience the same fate that Jesus did at the hands of the Roman Empire? So they're confused and scared. But there's some people who are saying that Jesus had shown up to them. So a resurrected Jesus had arrived and shown up and, and that he was actually alive. And poor Thomas, I, I hate that he's inherited the name Doubting Thomas. It's like it's his first name. That's a terrible thing to happen to you. But uh, I love Thomas. Thomas is one of my favorite New Testament figures because I would have been the exact same way. And Thomas, I picture him, you know, pretty righteously saying, oh, yeah, well, if Jesus is alive, I want him to walk through the locked doors. Because I think it's funny they mentioned that in the story. Uh, I want Jesus to walk through the locked doors, miraculously appear, and let me put my finger in his wounds. Like, I don't think this was Thomas being real devout or heroic. I think he was being... Sass, that's a weird word to say, sassy. That's a strange word. Sorry for that word, but that's uh, what came to mind. Um, that's what I want to happen. And Jesus, in his grace and in his kindness, does exactly that. He shows up miraculously in the room somehow and lets Thomas experience him in his woundedness. And I absolutely think this is one of the most beautiful sections of Scripture for so many reasons. But I want to narrow that down just to three quick observations this morning. And I hope that you'll find these inspiring as well. And the first one is this, that it is okay for doubt to be expressed. In my hometown, Cleveland, Tennessee, we say we're, we are in the buckle of the Bible Belt. And by the way, if you don't understand my southern accent, I'm sure there's some hillbilly translators in here. So um, I can literally fill my calendar with young adults who were raised in church and are in some measure of deconstruction are in the throes of figuring out how to deal with doubt for the first time. So they were raised in church. They didn't really have a lot of doubt growing up, but now they're in college or they're experiencing life and, and they're getting out of the church a little bit and, and can't stop doubts from arising and, and don't know what to do with it. And they're really in a crisis. And each time this happens, I'm able to respond to them out of my own woundedness around this topic. They're shocked to know that I go through seasons of, of doubt and I wrestle with my faith. For me, faith is not something that comes easily and it never has. I got saved at, a, at an amazing experience when I was 13, a really miraculous encounter with Jesus. But the, it took me a long time for my mind to catch up with that experience. And so my youth pastor, I'm sure, hated seeing me coming through the door because every week I would come and I would be like, the flood, really? Youth pastor, you're telling me that really happened? And then the next week I'm saying, okay, Jonah, a big well ate a guy? Like, tell me that's not true. And just every week, my skeptical nature and my poor youth pastor being so gracious and kind to me to help journey through that. But I'm consistently still to this day needing to recenter, uh, to come back to Jesus with questions and asking yet again, can I see those wounds? 
And here's the way this, this usually plays out with these young adults. They, they come to me really with fear and trepidation because I've, I've sometimes had the pleasure of being the, the first church figure that they've expressed, hey, I have deep doubts about these things. And, and each time I'm able to respond out of my own woundedness. And in that mutual connection, I think they breathe a deep sigh of relief because we are both wounded and they love to experience that mutual woundedness and know that it's not, I'm not there to judge or condemn. And I'm not saying every time they miraculously have a faith recovery, but it does open a door for extended conversation and the ability to pastor and walk alongside them. I'm always moved with such empathy because I know what it feels like to have a dark night of the soul and for that dark night of the soul to last an entirely long time. There's such a sense of relief and hope knowing that we are wounded together. And I love Thomas's outright story in this. I love Jesus's out, out, I love Thomas's outright honesty. I love Jesus's response. God is big enough for your honesty. He can handle your directness. Come to him with your doubts and your questions and your struggles. It's okay for doubt to be expressed. So the second observation that I always find beautiful is the paradoxical beauty in woundedness. Uh, a beautiful wound, that statement doesn't make much sense when you first hear it, but for those of you who've been through that process, you understand exactly how beautiful it can be to have wounds healed but still present. Um, and that's who Jesus is, a resurrected Savior that still has his wounds. I find it so inspiring. A wounded Savior, a wounded healer, that doesn't make sense, but it's one of the most beautiful things in the world. In my mind, this is one of the most unique and attractive aspects of Christianity, that we have a Savior who experienced the world and understands what it's like to be deeply wounded. Not only does he understand it, but he maintained those wounds even after resurrection. That's how important it is for Jesus, for you to know that there will be pain in the world and that he's with you in the midst of that pain. We don't worship a God who sits cross-legged between, uh, smiling between two candlesticks. We worship a God dying on a cross between two thieves. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to be empathetic with us in our weakness. We always want to hide our weaknesses. We want to cover up our woundedness. But there's something powerful in our vulnerability. And I'm sure that you've all had this experience in life. When you get up the nerve to tell someone, about your failure or your weakness or your woundedness that you've kept covered up for, for many, many years. And in that moment when they respond with, I've actually had the exact same failure or I have been there, I have the same wound. And you both breathe a deep sigh of relief. There's something about having mutual pain that brings us together. So every time you're wounded, it's a mark that could potentially provide healing for someone else. Not that we go out trying to get wounded or trying to be a victim, but every time you have a difficult season of your life, once you've worked through it, it can be a point of healing for someone else. Henry Nouwen wrote in his book, Wounded Healer, nobody escapes being wounded. We are all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. The main question is not how can we hide our wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed, but how can we put our woundedness in service to others? When our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing, we have also become wounded healers. 
So the second point, there's a counterintuitive beauty in our woundedness. So don't be ashamed of it. Like there's power in vulnerability. Somebody here needs you to be vulnerable about that so that they can experience the healing that Thomas did. The third observation, last one that I want to make, is that there's such a deep need for more wounded healers in our world. And so the, how I want to talk about this is a little bit unique, but uh, one, one of my favorite things about my job, I, I have, a, have such a blessed career that I get to do what I do. But So we fund partners all over the world, in America and abroad. And one of the things we ask when people receive money from us is we want to know the stories. So tell us some stories that happened um, as you use these funds. Tell us some things that happened, and we like to share those with churches and donors. And so every week, almost, either, either directly to me or one of our staff members, we get reports back from the field of global Anglican churches, usually 90% of the time, who are doing something really beautiful in the midst of really hard circumstances. And during staff meeting about three months ago, we just shared. I said, hey, let's all share some of the stories that we've heard. And as we were going around, it was on Zoom, you know, going around the screen, sharing these stories, I said to our staff, I think I'm going to become the good news guy. Like, there's so much bad news and bad press about the church in the world. There's plenty of podcasts and documentaries and exposés talking about how bad the church is. Like, I'm going to combat that. <laughs> and I'm going on a missionary journey like Paul to every church I show up in, whatever the homily is, I'm going to have a section about good news because church, the, the global church is doing some amazing things and we just don't get to hear about it. So I want to focus on a few stories and I have way too many stories in time um, of some wounded healers that I've encountered over the last three months. <clears throat> So in Burundi, we were there visiting. It's, it's the poorest country in the world. I, I underestimated exactly the amount of poverty we would experience there. And uh, one of the leaders that he, uh, we were working with, he, he leads a ministry for kids who live on the streets and tries to get them off the streets and in careers. And he was telling the story that during the, the Civil War genocide Burundi had, uh, same time, but it lasted a lot longer than Rwanda. Uh, uh, his father was murdered by another man in Burundi. And years later, down the road, um, he was running this street ministry, and they do intake for kids. And during the intake for two kids' siblings, he realized during that process that they were the kids of the man who murdered his father. And now they had applications to become part of his ministry. And so he talked about the real dilemma he had of, on one side, desperately not wanting to let these kids in. But he knew what it was like to grow up without a father. And he knew what it was like, all the struggles that came with his life after that. He was a, a kid on the streets. And so he let the kids in. And by the time we visited him, they had been in there several years and they were leaders in his ministry. The kids of the man that murdered his father. He's a wounded healer. Like That's how wounded healers operate in the world. Such a beautiful story. Uh, one of my heroes in the world is a guy named Sign. He lives in uh, Takam, Cambodia, a little small farming village. And he grew up uh, uh, in, a, in an orphanage there in the village. And when I met him a long time ago, he was around 20 years old. So he had recently gotten out and started working his first career job. And that particular village at that time, many years ago, suffered deeply from hunger and starvation. And pretty much every year they would have some deaths due directly to lack of food, food insecurity. And when we met with him, he said, I think, I think that, I know what it was like to grow up hungry, but the people in that village trust me, 
and I think I could convince them all to start a rice bank. So he needed like he needed ten thousand dollars. That was his pitch to us, and in his mind, that was just beyond any amount of money that could ever be attained. And pretty quickly, this little group of people got together funds and helped him start a rice bank. And as far as we know, I've been I've known Sign now for twenty years. Nobody since they did that, so people could borrow rice and then they'd pay it back the next year. Um, nobody has died specifically of starvation in that village. Just because Sign knew what it was like to be hungry and was creative enough to heal that problem. And now you go and the farm has exploded. They have commodity lending and pigs and 30 head of cattle and they're rotating crops and doing creative irrigation. It's just unbelievable what all he's implemented over the last 20 years. But it's because he was wounded and he knew that out of that, other people couldn't experience that at that level and he wanted to provide healing. Oh man, too many stories. Last one, maybe one and a half. Keep going, okay. (laughs) Molly, I grew up Pentecostal, so don't start that. (laughs) Um, Last night, I had the reason I'm in town, I, uh, the, the archbishop of a country that I can't name in case this gets posted and people hear it, um, come to the Q&A and you can get more details. Um, I, 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 had, I got this job during COVID and he's on my global board and I never had a chance to meet him in person. So he happened to be in America and that's why I came last night to meet this particular church leader. And um, over the last few years in his country, just devastation. So during COVID, the the doctors all went on strike. And so most of the hospitals were closed and a few wealthy families snatched up all the oxygen that was available and were charging astronomical amounts of money per oxygen tank to try to make money. And, And you couldn't get relief funds in. So usually the major players that are sending funds in, they couldn't get funds in the country because the new government I'm going to give away too much if I keep talking. Uh, The new government wouldn't let these funds come in and it was a really hard situation. So their their amount of deaths were disproportionate to other countries. And I sat and listened to this church leader talk about, and this is one of the beauties of the Anglican church, right? Is we, we, not me, I was not smart enough to figure it out. They figured out all these connections in bordering countries and uh, some men who own trucking companies and could truck cash in to the country to get it. So what happened was the, the, the church there was able to set up care centers that were the only place you could go and get affordable oxygen. So they're dotted all over. And even, even like this, this person's house, they moved out into a guest house and converted their house to care for 12 people at a time. And he just sobbed talking about the, the people that they couldn't save that were living in his house, trying to get this treatment, but it was too late. But it was the church that showed up and was tenacious enough to creatively figure out, out of their woundedness, how are we going to provide healing? And it's just unbelievable the amount of good that goes on in the world. Um, in Maui, we're helping some Anglican churches there after these devastating wildfires. And the, the last story I'll tell for real is um, in Turkey, Syria, earthquake. You know, it's easy to get money to Turkey. It's really difficult to get money to Syria. And again, through this... The, the beauty of, of what we are all doing together is this Anglican family. We, we were able to get money onto the f- ground in Syria. And the person who was giving um, relief aid recorded a video of a woman who was of a different religion. And in the video, she, she asked this question. And she said, I want to know why is it always the Christians who are in the rubble? Like every time there's rubble, something's been destroyed. It's only the Christians who are out here with us. 
And that was heartbreakingly beautiful to me. And the reason is because, church, we were built for this. This is what we were created since our founding. The church has been the one picking up unwanted children and providing care and love. The church has been the one creating the first hospitals that ever existed. The church has been the ones that were in the midst of their woundedness providing healing. And, and we, we should thrive in the midst of suffering. That is what we were built for. So God uses wounded healers. And in my life, he uses wounded healers to heal my doubting Thomas heart. So a real strong way I deal with my tendency toward doubt is through these stories and these relationships. So when I'm tempted to doubt because there's so many natural disasters in the world, I see people who are experiencing the disaster themselves and they are demonstrating great faith in God. And in a little way, that's me putting my finger in the wounds of Jesus and getting some healing for my heart. Uh, When I'm tempted to doubt God because of the way the church is behaving, and then I see real authentic believers all around the world demonstrating amazing grace and displays of Christ-like service. That's me getting to put my finger in the wound of Jesus and healing my doubting Thomas heart. So God's using wounded healers all over the world, and they're continually healing hearts like mine. So restoration. May each of you discover the paradox of your beautiful wounds. May you become wounded healers in our world and in your sphere of influence. May you bring your doubting Thomas Hart to the Savior this morning, who is here and present and willing to let you touch his wounds. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.